You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and with me today is Bill Lasher, a journalist whose work has appeared in The Guardian, Pacific Standard, Gizmodo, Portland Monthly, and elsewhere. He was a 2011 Knight Digital Media Center Multimedia and Convergence Fellow at the University of California, Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. He's a graduate of Oberlin College, the Annenberg School of Communications at USC, and the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. He lives in Portland, Oregon, and he joins me today in our studio. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So we're here today to talk about your new book, Eve of a Hundred Midnights, the star-crossed love story of two World War II correspondents and their epic escape across the Pacific, which is on sale June 21st and is published by William Morrow. This is a, it's a, it's a really interesting story of two journalists who end up getting married, but it's, it's a love affair between the two of them, but it's also a love affair with the Far East because they're both individually, even before they, they meet each other, so interested and, and dedicated to telling that story. So as I understand it, the entire story of your writing the book began with a portable typewriter. Uh, that's right. Uh, I was 24, 25, and my grandmother was moving, and she had accumulated a lot of her family's belongings over the years and just gave me this box and said, here, here's something I want you to have that I had when I was moving. And I opened it up, and there's this vintage Corona 4 portable typewriter, gold leaf on the outside. It's a black, really beautiful machine. And I was just starting my career as a journalist, and she felt that this was an appropriate gift for me. And she told me this this typewriter belonged to your cousin, the war correspondent. And I was, I was blown away. I hadn't heard this story, even though I'd wanted to be a journalist since I was in high school. And it just opened this whole world to me that I didn't know about my family and about this area that I was interested in. And I was fascinated. I want to know more. And he's not just any war correspondent, right? I mean, they, they, they describe him as, um, you know, a soldier of the press. And when he, when he does die, you know, the accolades come from everybody in journalism and General MacArthur and a huge number of people. So remind us of his name and her name so that we have that. And then tell us just a little bit about his backstory, because he ends up going to the Far East at a very, very young age. So his name was Melville Jacoby. The woman who he would end up marrying was uh, Annalee Whitmore, later Annalee Jacoby, and later Annalee Fadiman. But he was a student at Stanford. In, after his sophomore year, he had won an essay contest and he, to go abroad. He wanted to go abroad somewhere. He knew that was interesting, but he didn't quite know where. He was very rootless, very much had this feeling of, you know, I kind of don't know my place and what I want to be doing with my life. He's and an only child, right? He was an only child. Yeah. His father died when he was two and a half years old in the Spanish flu. Uh, he, you know, grew up with his mom. He was a very tight-knit family. His, they, they lived on his grandparents' uh, house for a while. And, but just was feeling a little, a little like he needed a little bit more. And he had this opportunity to go to southern China to... Uh, a place called Lingnan University, which is now uh, Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou, uh, which Westerners knew as Canton at the time. And he just fell in love with China and the Instantly, people he met there. Seems. And it really gave him this sense of purpose. You know, 
one of the, the gifts of writing this book is I've been able to read all his letters home to his mother because she kept them throughout the years and kept voluminous letters, not just to his mother, but to some other people as well. And that gave me a real insight into who he was and what he saw. And you can sort of track his growing fascination with the place until at the end of 1937, or the summer of 1937, the end of his school year, he was there traveling through China just as China and Japan went to war against one another. And he realized after he got back to the United States that few people were paying attention to that war back in the United States. And there were, everyone was rightfully concerned about Europe, but he kind of felt the regret that that wasn't being... It wasn't being attended to at all. In fact, I, I pulled a quote from one of his letters where, they, where he says, they still couldn't believe that the yellow man could be that good in terms of warfare. It must be the Germans. That was all everyone kept saying. Yeah, I and mean, that's something that, that's something that I remarked on, I and mean, that's why I, I include it in the book. Is there is this this belief, you know, as as late as the 1930s and the 1940s, that you know Asians were just technically inferior to to the West, and that that you know the U.S. would have an easy time of it when they were there, and that that you know there was still this sort of you know savage experience it, happening. Absolutely, there. yeah, that that. And, yeah, and so that sort of racism perception. was something that he recognized, and that other people recognized. He also, you know, did a master's study on newspaper coverage of of uh, Asia and Japan and of that war, and he m- references some of that then. So I find him to be a very insightful young man yeah. for his time, and so were some of the other journalists he met, and he really formed a strong bond with out there. And I think, you know, you mentioned the phrase "soldier of the press," and I think that was a great fitting tribute to him after he passed away because. He felt very dedicated to what he did as a, in the way that a soldier feels a sense of duty. In fact, at one point, he was wrestling between joining the army right. as the war approached the U.S. or continuing in jur- journalism. And he realized that he could serve his country and the world better by remaining a journalist. Right. So he, he's sort of a, a very early example of, of what we now think of as these embedded journalists, right? Because he was so close to the action. But he also was really frustrated by the fact that he would file these stories and then they would they would be censured and they would be they would be altered correct yeah I, I mean to some extent he didn't get to see as much of that as more that his wife would see that later in her life I see. But, but he saw some of that I mean he he saw early on you know he was in uh, French Indochina in 1940 which uh, is now Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos and he would hear a radio station broadcasting back people reading the United Press copy that at the time he was providing. And, and he could tell that that wasn't what I sent in, that wasn't what right. I wrote. And this happened again. He, he, he became very, very close and dear friends with Teddy White, who uh-huh. went on to write The Making of the President and, and all those um, other books. He, Teddy went back to the United States uh, to work in Time Magazine's offices here for a time. And Mel was the Time reporter in China. And Teddy, he Mel would have to rely on Teddy to, to sort of make sh- to make sure things are accurate, correct? Yeah. yeah, because a lot of the editors in New York would go into just their assumptions of what the war uh, was and what was happening there, regardless of what the people on the ground were saying. And you know, this was a time at which people like Whitaker Chambers were sort of consolidating power at time and yeah. and really twisting what was being said to advance a certain agenda. And that's something that Mel would have been incredibly frustrated with. And had he made it back to the United States, I'm sure he would have been livid about what he discovered. Yeah. So, so that's Mel. So tell us a little bit about Annalee and her very early fascination with the East as well. Well, Annalee was, you know, uh, born in a somewhat 
less privileged circumstances than Mel. Her father was a banker, worked at a bank, and lost his job in the Depression, and they had to move back, move out to California, and really struggled throughout high school, but they were still, you know, able to send her to Stanford, partially because she was incredibly intelligent and uh, passed all the exams with more than flying colors, and ended up working at the Stanford Daily as uh, its first female managing editor in 18 years. She was... I think first and foremost dedicated to journalism yeah. and writing. Yeah, and, and serious journalism, yeah. And so she was doing that at the Stanford Daily and looking for work after her work at the Stanford Daily, worked for a brief time with a, uh, a New Deal organization, a New Deal government agency, uh, was frustrated that she was sort of relegated to a role of stenographer there, then went to look for more work. She thought she'd try her hand at screenwriting. She had always been interested in theater and stages. And so she applied to work at MGM and, again, started out as a stenographer, but that's because she could get her foot in the door and offered to write a script on spec when the director needed it over the weekend, and she did, and the movie and was a success. it got produced. It's yeah. Andy Hardy meets debutante. Is that right? Is that that's correct. It? It's a pretty silly movie. I watched some yeah, of it, but, but it, was, it was a commercial success, and she wrote it with another Stanford alum that was a good friend of hers, and... It and they immediately offered her a job as yeah. a screenwriter. Now at, she's at a MGM. screenwriter. But even she was in that position of seeing this war developing in, in the Far East and wanting to know more about it. And she, you know, was in 1940 and 1941, was trying to figure out how she could get herself there, even while she was working for MGM. And she right. thought maybe she could go there to write as a screenwriter. And uh, while that was happening, Mel came back to the United States for a brief period, was feeling very restless here, feeling very much like he needed to get back to Asia to cover the war again, and heard that there was this woman who had gone to Stanford, who he knew very vaguely, looking to find a way to China. And they went and had a drink together and instantly felt a connection. And it was as much an intellectual connection as yeah. it was a physical one. Yeah, because it takes a while. It really did, it, yeah, it really takes quite a while. And it was really, really about, you know, they they, they dreamed up writing a script about China and the war Yeah, there, all different and, ways to get it going, yeah. But they eventually got together, and she made it out there and instantly hit the ground running as a speechwriter for Madame Chiang Kai-shek and uh, writing promotional copy for United China Relief. And so much so that they couldn't even spend that much time together because they were both doing their own work. It's really a very brief time, but a very intense time. I mean, they meet, re-meet in China, fall in love. He gets transferred to Manila to work for time as its bureau chief because everyone knows the war's coming to Manila. She can't get out there until the very end of November. And by that point, it's clear that war is going to get started, yep. and the two of them are trying to figure out how to do this. So they get married right away, and... Within a week of their marriage, Pearl Harbor happens. Then it's full-time work for both of them. It's full-time work, and it's full-time danger, because by New Year's Eve, it's clear that where they are in Manila, they have to get out. So they make a, a rather dramatic escape. So tell us about that. Right. I mean, it's an escape it, complete with jumping onto boats as the docks are on fire. In fact, the very last boat to leave Manila. The Japanese were expected to enter the city by morning of New Year's Day. Uh, they knew this. Uh, there was a huge meeting in a room at the Bayview Hotel in, in Manila uh, among all the journalists working in Manila about whether they should stay together as a group and hope for house arrest, as they thought was happening in other cities, or try to escape together or make some other decision. Uh, a lot of the journalists opted to stay because they felt it was safer. They had families in Manila. They didn't want to risk the danger of you know, running of through travel, yeah. a war zone. And, and Mel, capture. And Tra capture. And capture, yeah. And Mel and Anli, they didn't 
want to be captured either, but Mel had already angered the Japanese with the previous coverage of his, so he knew he would probably be executed if he stayed. So they decided to run, Annalee decided to go with him, and they had found a boat. One other journalist friend of theirs came and ran out to the boat. The harbor's on fire. They have to weave through mines in the dead of night, and they wake up the next morning uh, docked off Corregidor just as a... Uh, as a Japanese bombers flying over for an air raid, Corregidor is this old American, this big American fortress there in the Manila Bay, and and so they they go there even though they don't have permission to be at an American military yeah. base, but because they have friends in the military, they're allowed to stay and report. And so they spend the next six weeks, you know, reporting from those front lines of of these very brutal, very deprived battles there, in, Ugh, and go to so Bataan and brutal. It was incredibly brutal, and they provide pictures of this brutal fighting, really vivid descriptions for the magazines that they write for. Mel writes for Time and Life, Annalie writes for for Liberty Magazine, and both of them are uh, there, and yet it's their honeymoon also. Yeah. And how do the pandas fit in? (laughs) The pandas. Well, they... um, There's long been this history of panda diplomacy, and... uh, the Chinese government realized they needed to elicit American sympathy for their war, war effort. And also for the, you know, there were a lot of orphaned children there uh, displaced by the war. Because at that point in 1941, you know, the war had been happening in China for four years. And so uh, Madam Chiang Kai-shek uh, has decided that one way to get that sympathy would be to give a panda to the United States as a gift to the American people. And... It becomes Mel's responsibility, however, because he has volunteered to do some work for the Chinese government as, and to organize the team to go out and find these pandas and trap them and go out into the Sichuan forest and have this incredible journey to find one. And then they find one, but then they find another panda. <laughs> and, and he's got to arrange all the, the people to, to find it. And then there's this other man named David Crockett Graham who arranges, does sort of the actual finding. But... Um, then the pandas have to somehow be transported back to the United States. So they end up on the same plane as Annalie when she comes to Manila. And uh, because the boat that's re- that's going to take the pandas to, to the United States isn't quite ready to leave, Mel and Annalie have to take the pandas with them on their honeymoon uh, to a, a small resort called Lake Tal, uh, just outside of Manila. And in addition to hanging out in their honeymoon cabin uh, overlooking the lake. They have to feed these pandas and find a place to store them and get away, get rid of onlookers and spectators who want to come take pictures with the pandas. And at one point, as one author says, who visited them, says trying to sell them air conditioners to keep the pandas cool and grape juice and stuff like that. So it was every letter describing the pandas. It's just this incredible headache. It's just frustrating. So it's, you know, but it's also a little comical. And, uh, you know, and they recognized the sort of, Absurdity. absurdity of it all yeah. while they were there. Yeah. It's not just something we look back on and see. So it, it's incredible the amount of activity and life and work that they crammed into th- these few months that they were together. And, you know, Annalie makes it back to the States. Mel does not. You know, we'll leave those details to the reader to discover um, in the book. But let's now flash forward to you. You've got... You've got the typewriter, and as I understand it, that typewriter is either part of or related to the fact that somebody basically finds, after his death, I don't know, remember how many years, a, a closet full of all the letters and, and all of the documentation around their story. So how tell us your story related to this story. 
At what point did you decide to write it, and, and what did you do? Well, so I, I was given this typewriter when I was uh, about 12 years ago. I was in my mid-20s. I was just getting my first job as a journalist, and I, I again, as I think I mentioned, my grandmother gave it to me as a present, and she had found the typewriter, and and these boxes and boxes full of things that said, like, Indochina letters or uh, uh, World War II scrapbook, you know, but not just scrapbooks. I mean, pages and pages of letters, old photos, photo negatives. I've just this past week been scanning. Is that right? Hundreds and hundreds of photos Mel took from all over Asia. What did you do with the glass um, recordings of the radio broadcasts? That, those are... I want to know about those that. Those are in a little box at my grandmother's. My grandmother's not a pack rat, but sort of on the verge of pack rat and keeps a lot of old stuff. And it's great because it allowed me of access to who this person is. And... It's interesting because finding these letters and finding these pictures and records and everything was a chance for also for myself and my grandmother to get to know one another better. Oh, interesting. She had discovered yeah. them when um, Mel's mother, her aunt, passed away in 1981. And she and her sister went to clear out her aunt's house and found a closet full of everything that had belonged to Mel. The letters, the typewriter, clothing, Asian swords he'd brought back, you know... Um, even some film. Was, uh, um, he'd take, he took home movies when he was in China, and he shows up on some of them. And uh, and she, for a while, tried to get people to look into it, you know, Stanford yeah. to look into it. But then, you know, her life went on, and it wasn't the right thing for her to be spending her time on. And then it became something where the two of us just would, every time I'd visit her, uh, we'd talk about it, we'd pull out the boxes full of stuff and be like, oh, this goes with this, and this is a story. And it was always a, you should write a book about this someday, you should write a book about this someday. But I was going to grad school or doing jobs or working on other projects, and I finally realized that, you know, someday was not coming anytime soon, and I had to make someday happen. And, uh, you know, she she's in great health now, but, you know, she is getting older, so I wanted to do this at a time when I can engage with her about this. And so I started to track down everyone I could find connected to the book, everyone who was a child of someone that that was part of it. Or in one case, I even met a man who had been who was still alive, who was one of the Chinese students at the school that Mel had gone to, wow. and uh, his daughter, sort of by coincidence, was a friend of of my uncle. And so we were able to get in touch, and I was able to spend an afternoon with him, learning a bit about what that time period was like. And yeah. And it's been sort of a, actually a great experience to sort of help like revive the memories of all these families as well and, and help them sort of connect oh, of with their past. And it's just been a, you know, sort of a, a hunt for me since then. And, and like I said, a way for my grandmother and I to sort of work on something together. So has she read it? She has, uh, and she's she's read every draft of it, and <laughs> uh, she's had strong opinions on it along oh, the yeah, way. Oh, so yes, give us one. Um, well, I, I, I mean, I can't think of it as a specific one, but there, there were a lot of moments where she said, well, no, it wasn't like, you know, we, I talk a little bit at the very beginning of the book about what his family and their friends like was, you know, no, that's not where it was. It was over here, you know, or just like, you should talk more about this. You should talk about the pandas or you should talk about, yeah, that's interesting. you know, you really need to emphasize the fact, actually, one of the things that she really helped me see was that, that this is a story that is still happening today, and he's yep. just like young journalists today. She really wanted to sort of draw out that connection in a way that I thought was was really helpful, and um, and she's right. I oh mean, yeah, it, and you you get that you you get his sense of dedication and mission, and you get his sense of danger. Like everything that he's doing is as dangerous as well, any soldier. Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. I mean, he he and Emily are in the jungles of Bataan, where there are people. 
you know, being seized, air raids, or having to jump into ditches on the side of the road when planes come by for dive bombing. Uh, you know, he witnesses some very horrific air raids in, in Chongqing, which is, yeah. is the wartime capital. That was bad. Um, uh, they have to, uh, you know, they flee on that first, that first boat, and then they're on two other boats where they have to sail by night so that they're not chased, and then land on islands where they don't know if they're going to have, you know, friendly faces or enemies on these islands, and this is something that they spend, you know, their whole lives doing. And, and of course, then there's also the risk of being arrested, yep. being accused of being spies, being murdered, being executed, any number. I mean, there's political risks, too. So it was, you know, a lot of these people, for example, who worked in China as journalists ended up being people who were caught up in, in McCarthyism yeah, and, 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 and those scares next. afterwards. So, you know, had he been around during the McCarthy era, would he have been accused of being a communist sympathizer? We don't, we don't know, but um, it's something that would have been a risk. Yes. It, it, it's such a fascinating, Mel's story is so fascinating, and Annalise's story is equally fascinating. I mean, you could write a whole other book on what happens to her when she comes back to the States. It's, it's, it's really very interesting, all of it. So you publish soon. How is your experience as being published? I'm so eager and so excited to like share this. I've become very like infatuated with Mel and his story and very obsessed right. with him. Yeah. I think that it's great to have this sort of amplification of this story. I think that's something that I'm very excited about. Right. Well, I thank you so much. It was a, it was a wonderful book. Thank you very much. It's it was great. It's great to be part of this. So we've been talking with Bill Lasher about Eve of a Hundred Midnights that goes on sale June 21st. It's available in print and e and audio. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.